We are continuing today in our Living Liturgy sermon series, and the whole preface of this series is that worship makes us into new people. So each week we're taking an aspect of our liturgy and considering how that is the case. What is this specific element of our liturgy shaping us into? And today we are considering the call to worship. Even in the very name, the idea of the call to worship reveals that as human beings, we have the capacity to be in awe, that we are created to worship God. So the question is, are we in awe of God? Are we beholding him and in wonder of him and worshiping him? And our scripture today recounts God's creative work when he made everything. And so let's give our listening ear to God's word. I am reading from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Where is the most awe-inspiring place you have been to? Personally, for me, two places come to my mind. One is the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland, where basalt columns form due to ancient volcanic activity. And the majority of these columns are hexagons with six sides, just like our logo, and are densely located along the Irish coast and under, under the North Irish Sea over to Scotland. And the second place in my mind was my backyard in rural western Pennsylvania. And during the warmer seasons of the year, I would go and sleep on the trampoline in the backyard. And as the night progressed, my eyes adjusted more and more to the darkness. Early in the night, I would call out the constellations. There's the Big Dipper, Cassiopeia, Orion, Draco, and so on. 30 minutes later, and I would see shooting stars. Another 30 minutes, and you'd see the Milky Way band stretched across the sky. I loved lying on that trampoline, falling asleep there, seeing the stars fill the sky. But why? Why did I do that? Why did I love it? I wasn't studying astronomy. I wasn't out there to memorize constellations. I did not know how to, st- to sail, and so I was not out there to, for any navigational purposes either. I loved lying on that trampoline because I was in awe. A secular definition of awe is this, that awe is the emotion of self-transcendence, a feeling of admiration and revelation in in the face of something greater than yourself. It's a sense of your smallness and insignificance. So you can be in awe when you're out in nature, like lying on a trampoline. You can be in awe when you visit old, perhaps even ancient buildings. You can be in awe when you appreciate a piece of art, You can be in awe when you see a child. Awe is the opposite of being bored. It is the opposite of finding something dull. And so awe, when understood this way, it can be a little scary. 
but it is also very good as it resets our self, it resets our sense of perspective. But awe, biblically, awe is more than being aware of our smallness. True awe is the experience and the embrace of God. Awe is what we experience when God comes close to us. Awe is what we experience when evil is lifted, when we see reality more clearly, when we are drawn to who God is, to who we are, and we get a taste of life unaffected by the fall. And so understood this way, awe is both a, a, a taste of Eden and the world to come. And we as human beings are hardwired for awe. We are searching for joy, we are searching for hope, and we're searching for pleasure. And this longing is deep in our hearts. Our heart cries out to be enveloped by the glory of God. And whether we know it or not, whether we admit it or not, the desire to be amazed is really the longing to see God face to face. And the fact that we can feel awe anywhere and at any, almost any time shows that God is present at all times. He is always with us and the appropriate response is worship. And David is getting at that reality in the psalm. We are meant to worship God with our entire lives. And we feel awe. And we're meant to worship God and worship him with our entire lives. But when we feel awe, do we worship? The answer is no. We don't always worship when we feel awe. We don't, well, we don't worship God when we feel awe. And we just read an awesome psalm. But why is there a disconnect between our experience of wonder and our worship of God? Our first point that I want to, us to consider is a diagnosis of dullness. A diagnosis of dullness. Fundamentally, our hearts are, as one author put it, disenchanted. And what he meant when he used this word is this, that a disenchanted world has been drained of the supernatural of God and transcendence. A disenchanted world is a material world where what you see is what you get. What he was, what the author was saying is that we don't look at the world and see mystery where our knowledge has limits and God is constantly at work. It's quite the contrary. We look at the world and see an explanation for every phenomena. So why don't we wonder at God? Why aren't we in awe of him saying he's awesome? And it really could be a number of things, but to di- diagnose this dullness, I want to give three potential diagnoses. And they all begin with D, doubt, dualism, and disillusionment. So let me first consider doubt. The first diagnosis is doubt. And perhaps you are a skeptic where you hear these amazing stories of who God is and what he does, but you don't believe them. And to you, I want to to encourage you to do something rather provocative. I encourage you to doubt your doubts. I, I want you to question your assumptions about life. And just... I want you to question the fact that humanity already knows everything, that there's no mystery. And to get at this, consider a New York Times article, and this is just from uh, earlier this month. 
And this article is entitled, How Beauty is Making Scientists Rethink Evolution. And the, and the article explains how these birds, these flame bower birds, define natural selection. And so the article just gets at the point that we don't know everything that even we are constantly learning new things about this world that undermines our, our ways of thinking about it. So I encourage you to doubt your doubts. The second diagnosis is dualism, specifically dualistic thinking, where both world and life are divided into two realms, one into the sacred, one into the secular. And if you've grown up in the church, you have experienced this one way or another. Earlier this week, I was talking with Mike Fugay, who gave me permission to share this. And Mike is currently a middle school biology teacher, and once he was a youth pastor. And when he made the decision to change careers, to step down, he was asked the question, aren't you called to ministry? And the answer is yes, but that question reveals that ministry is doing is when you're a pastor, and ministry is not when you are a teacher. But Psalm 8 undermines this dualistic way of thinking. David remembers the creation story where God created all things and made them spe- and made and, and the, God made all things and declared all things good. And when he created hum- us as human beings, he crowned them with glory and honor. He created humanity in his image and he gave us dominion over all things. But notice this. It is because of both the story that David remembers and David's experience in the world that he is in awe. It's not just because he's experiencing wonderful creation. It's actually because he's remembering God's story. To put it this way, David is experiencing awe because of both the sacred and the secular because God created all things. The psalm undermines this dualistic way of thinking. The third diagnosis is disillusionment. Every day we are marketed to. If only we would have this one thing, then our lives would get easier. We're constantly marketed to. Let's just consider a few slogans to get at how this is the case. Consider M&M's. The slogan is, M&M's melt in your mouth and not in your hands. But that's not true. They do melt in your hand. Verizon Wireless has a slogan. Can you hear me now? Good. And the so the idea of Verizon Wireless is that they never drop calls. But if you can't, like, I, if I'm talking to you on the phone from my my kitchen, the phone call will drop. And we are bombarded with promises like these, where we are promised that things can give us a better life, where people can give us a better life, and that's just not true. These lies, these are lies. These are promises never fulfilled. And so we are cynical people. We are suspicious and thus we are resistant to beholding God in awe. And the truth is that in our disillusionment, that our disillusionment is tied to our expectations of God and his promises. God says that he is there with us, never leaving us or nor forsaking us. But we have a certain expectation of God when we hear this. We associate God's presence with blessing Consider this illustration. Shakespeare could not be bodily present in his plays. And if he would, he would be ruining everything. But he is the playwright. And as the playwright, he shows up in his plays. And 
the characters, in the actions of the characters, in the plot, and more. And so in a way, Shakespeare transcends his work by he is also in his work. And this is a metaphor for understanding something about God. That God is transcendent, but God is also involved. That God is above his creation, but he is involved in the world. And if God would be involved in the world in the way that we wanted want him to be, he would it would really ruin it everything. And so if we want to experience awe, then we have to question our disillusionment. We need to check our expectations of God. And this brings me to the remedy of wonder, which is our second point. The remedy of wonder. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah put it this way, For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. In the scriptures, we find that God comes to us in the flesh. God becomes man. This shocked and surprised everyone. People expected the long-awaited promised Messiah to come as a conqueror, one who would defeat the Romans and restore Israel's strength. But Jesus came as a baby. He worked as a carpenter. He was not born in the capital, but a stable, and he grew up in the backwater region of Galilee. The Apostle Paul said that Jesus' death is foolish to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. No one expected that God's anointed one would rescue his people by dying, but that is exactly what Jesus did. God reveals that he turns our expectations upside down. He doesn't do what we expect him to do, but he is the one for whom our souls long. He comes running to us. The creator God, the one who made the world, rescued creation by becoming it. So the remedy to our dullness, the remedy so that we would have wonder is God himself. He reveals himself through his word, through his creation, and through the cross. And so this leads me to the question of how can we cultivate an awe and deeper wonder for God? How can we cultivate awe in our lives? If you want to nurture awe, if you want to cultivate wonder for God, here are a few things you can do. And these three things that I have for you, they really go in concert with one another. They go together. If you do do just one thing, you actually hold yourself back from experiencing the whole wonder of God. So the first is to run to God in confession. To go to God and confess the ways you've doubted Him, where you have had a a dualistic thinking, or you have been disillusioned and and disappointed with what he is doing in your life. Confessing our sin is not something that is natural to us. It's hard for us to admit our wrongdoing, to admit that we hurt one another. But it is imperative for us to confess our sins, to confess our wrongs to people when we've hurt them, if we ever want to have a whole and, and right relationship with them again. The same is true with God. And this is one reason why we confess our sins every single week, because it is something that we need to learn and to be reminded of over and over again. The second thing to do is to pray. We need to remember that prayer is powerful within our lives. We truly cannot do anything in our lives in our own strength, energy, or willpower. 
we live and we move and have our being in God. And Psalm 8 highlights the power of wonder that is expressed to God in song and prayer. Look at verse 2 with me. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And so what David is saying here is that when a baby praises God, then God's enemies are silenced. Then God's enemies are still. And that's not what we would expect at all. Because children are annoying. Infants are weak. It's not about the age of the person or the, or who the person is. What matters is what David what David is saying. What matters is the person to whom they pray to. What matters is the one who is praised. What matters is God. And so the third thing that I have for you is to enjoy the beauty of the world. Earlier I mentioned that our culture sees our world as disenchanted, but the reality is that our world is enchanted. It's beautiful that God made it and God is active and working in this world and he made this world and declared it to be good. And throughout history, people have looked at the world and seen beauty, but something awful happened where beauty is no longer loved or fostered. And this is how Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar put it. We can be sure that whoever sneers at her name as if she were the ornament of a bourgeoisie past, whether he admits it or not, can no longer pray and soon will no longer be able to love. What he's getting at is that there is a missional importance of wonder. If we fail to be awestruck at God, then we won't pray and we won't love. If we fail to be in awe, we won't love God. If we fail to be in awe of God, then we won't love our neighbors. So as a church, we strive to create a culture of wonder and awe, something that we cultivate in our own lives individually and personally through, and through worship. It's also something we want to cultivate together as a people, as a new family, together in worship. We take God seriously through confession and prayer and beauty. This is one reason why we have prayer meetings, what we call Vespers. And we need to cultivate wonder if we are going to love our neighbors. We need to be in awe of God if we're going to love him with every fiber of our being. We need to pursue him, but thankfully, he has already pursued us. Let's pray.